great Scottish preacher, 19th century Edinburgh, Alexander White, said that uh, he used to say that there are two, there are only two kinds of people that will tell you the truth about yourself. The first is the person that hates you. Uh, he said, <laughs> he said, there are two kind, only two kinds of people that will tell you the truth about yourself, and you should listen to both. The first is the kind that hates you, and they're just telling you the truth about you because they don't mind hurting you, and in fact, they like it. And the other kind are the people that really love you and really care about you. Not most of your friends, unfortunately. Most of your friends and most of my friends, and I'm included in that, too often to to want to confess, so I'm confessing it here. <laughs> Most of our friends don't love us enough to tell us the truth all the time, but some do, and oftentimes that's family, and it hurts and it cuts, but they care too much about us to not be truthful because it's only the truth that sets us free, and so they're risking being on our bad side by telling us things that we don't want to hear, aren't they? Because they care more about us than about what we think of them. And isn't that wonderful? It, it's hard to have a friend like that, but it's the best thing. And Jesus here is that. He's that friend to the church at Pergamum, which is, I think, the third church out of seven here in Revelation 2 and 3. You know, I had, I had that, an encounter with a meeting with three friends, one of whom was my wife, (laughs) uh, the other of whom was my brother, and the third of whom was my brother-in-law, both of whom I'm going out to lunch with today because it's my brother's birthday. But uh, recently we had a meeting like that, and uh, it was was something of an intervention. It was a painful lunch for me, I got to tell you. But boy... Don't, wasn't I clear on the fact that those three people love me more than most people on, on planet Earth? That's the way Jesus speaks to his own. He loves us. He's truth. His words cut. And that's, in fact, what he says in each of these, to each of these churches. He says, look at me. The first thing he says, essentially, is look at me. Because in Revelation 1, it, John encountered the risen Christ. And we learn all, we see, we see all these things about him, these aspects, seven aspects, in fact, about who he is and what he's done. And he always, to the, in all of his addresses, in his seven addresses to the churches, he picks out an, an aspect for each church. And he says, I am the one who holds the seven stars, or I am the one who holds the keys of death. And here, or I am the one with the, with the uh, eyes as a fire. Here to this church, he says, both the first thing and essentially the last thing he says in Revelation 2, verse 12, at the start, the first verse, uh, the first thing out of his mouth to this church, and then in verse 16, as he, as he finishes up his word and gives a promise, he says, uh, I am the one who has a, the sharp sword coming out of my mouth. So his word cuts this church, but not because he hates them, because he loves them. I was with a friend this week in a very painful meeting, and he would not listen It was family who showed up because only family cares that much about this person. This person has become unhinged from reality and is hurting people. And this person refuses to listen to people that love him. And we were telling him some really hard things because we love him. Um, 
That's what Christ does here. Let me go ahead and read. Let me go ahead and read the passage. And to the church, this is Revelation 2, verse 12 and following. And to the church of, and to the angel, excuse me, of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two edged sword. See, there it is. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. So he starts with an attaboy. That's tip. That's a typical order for these seven letters, right? I know where you dwell, where Satan's. Th- so, so Pergamum, by the way, and I'll, I'll touch on some of this in a second. It was it was referred to as Satan's throne. He he refers to it in a couple verses as in the same verse actually at the end is where Satan dwells, it, and it will talk. About, I'll talk about why. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Right. So they have lots of lots of things they lots of persecution around them they're having to hold fast to christ in this evil culture yet you hold fast my name he says and you did not deny my faith even in the days of antipas my faithful witness who was killed among you where satan dwells but i have a few things against you so here he he piles it on he accuses them of some things that they need to he points out some things i should say that he wants to uh, them to repent of. But I have a few things against you. You have some, some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear. See, there it is again, by the way, toward the end of this passage, uh, the sword out of the mouth. I will cut you. I will slay you if need be. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna. Here he finishes with a promise. This is what he does with most of the churches. In fact, I think all. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So he promises these wonderful images of a hidden manna, only he knows about it, where it is, and a white stone with a name on it that only he knows. How wonderful. So this is the risen Christ to the church in Pergamum, the third church here in this, in this lineup of seven. And, you know, the, really the, the thrust of this, of this word is that this church is courageous. They have had at least one among them. He gets named. His, literally, he will, his name goes down in the annals of history for giving his life, for holding fast unto death in his witness of Christ and being killed for it in this evil place of emperor worship. And we now, all for the past 2,000 years, have been able to, to see his name here in this church. So how wonderful. What a picture of how the earth offers a glory that fades, but Christ's glory will never fade. It will just wax for eternity. And um, so his name's Antipas and he held fast. But so they, they have courage. This church has courage, but they've compromised. Okay. So, um, so, so Christ's word to them essentially is conquer by not compromising. Stop compromising. You have wonderful things that you've done. Some of you have even lost your lives through faithful witness to me. Um, You've been courageous, but you're compromising. I want you to conquer by not compromising. Be holy. God says elsewhere to his people, right? Be holy as I am holy. He cares about the details. I was 
helping a friend, helping in air quotes, um, because not really helping. I was really talking to him while he worked, put up a shed in his backyard, um, last, last weekend. And he was, uh, he noticed that he looked at the structure. It was a 12 foot long structure and shed and, it, it was there was once he finished one side of it, he realized it was about a foot and a half off f- from in alignment from the other side. So he had to redo it, and he did it well. It didn't take him too long, but he had to go back and figure out okay what's wrong. And it turns out that there was about a half inch differential at the at the other side. He had started with a half inch off, and it led to after twelve feet, one and a half feet off. That's just not acceptable. And that's the way, you know, I mean, C.S. Lewis has even better examples than I just gave um, of, I think he uses sort of a long journey and then a math problem. And he talks about then the long journey, you know, you, you start off with, if you start off when you're charting a course of a thousand miles, let's say with one, you're one degree off, doesn't seem like a big deal. It's one degree. It's a little compromise. So what, you know, I'm, I'm going to watch something on Netflix I shouldn't watch. I mean, it's, you know, there's no nudity or maybe, maybe there is, but it's, it's quick or, or, um, maybe there's some violence or some language or whatever, whatever it is, you know, you, you have a, you, your conscience is stricken a bit, or maybe it's as you're watching or maybe it's stricken before you, maybe you know, you shouldn't do it as even before, or maybe it's just time, time on the screen, or maybe it's, um, a glance, maybe it's getting involved emotionally with someone that you shouldn't be. Maybe it's, um, being too busy maybe it's it could be all sorts of things right and we'll get into some of those perhaps in a bit but a little compromise what could it hurt but that one degree uh off over time here it is right over time when you get to your when you get to the destination you want to be at in a thousand miles that that one degree off at the start has led to being hundreds of miles uh, away from where you where you should have been and uh, the math problem that he gives is similar. You know, you, you have this long, you know, equation. Let's say you're doing a long division, and it's just a big, a big number. And you're working it, and you have a small error toward the beginning. And that small error toward the beginning, if you follow it through and make, make, uh, you know, cont- and, and don't make any mistakes uh, for the rest of the problem, it's going to lead to the longer the problem is, the, the bigger the error is going to be at the end, right? And so. Uh, that the, once you realize what you've done, you can't just correct f- from where you realize the mistake and then finish. That's not going to give you the right answer. You have to go all the way back, find the mistake like my friend did with his shed, correct that, and then rework the problem. So these are just a couple examples that C.S. Lewis gives somewhere. I think it's probably in Mere Christianity um, of, of, the, of what happens. He, he gives them in a different circumstance. He's really talking about repentance, but that's what Jesus says here. He says, repent, turn from those things and change your ways. Uh, and Jesus knows, my point here is that Jesus knows it seems kind of mean. He's like, okay, be holy as I am holy. I'm not going to tolerate compromise. Uh, and they were, and we'll talk about how Pergamum could have been compromising. This, this, this word to this church is a bit more mysterious. We don't know as much, but they could have been compromising um, sexually with some sexual immorality, um, maybe, maybe worshiping the state, looking to the state to provide for, it, for its needs, mixing in with the culture in some little subtle ways, even though they were, so, in some cases, losing their lives for, for a witness to Christ. 
and he cares so much about these things because he knows how far off course they can lead us over time and how they extinguish our witness. We're not going to stand out as much as Christians in a culture, which is a huge witness to the world of the beauty of Christ, right? But these, these folks were compromising. They were looking too much like the culture around them. And he calls the culture, uh, he said, it's, you're in Satan's throne. I know, it's, I know it's tough. Well done, but I have this against you. <clears throat> so if Ephesus was, and Ephesus was the first of the seven churches that, that Christ addresses here through John, Ephesus was the New York City of Asia Minor, or of Asia, uh, Pergamon was, was the D.C., the Washington, D.C. It was the political capital. Uh, like I said, it, uh, it, was a, it was a place of emperor worship. It was the first city uh, to devote it in, maybe in the Roman, well, I don't know about the Roman Empire, but I've somehow in, one, in my studies, maybe it was just in Asia Minor, the first of the seven, certainly, to devote itself to emperor worship. Um, it was one of the more prominent cities that sort of vied with Ephesus and one other city um, for for sort of the elite city in the area. Um, it, it devoted itself to emperor worship and to Augustus in particular, who was the emperor when the census was taken, uh, when Joseph and Mary went down to Bethlehem and had, and Mary had Jesus. Uh, he brought in the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. He was a great emperor. He, he said famously that he, I found Rome, a city of, of, uh, bricks and left her a city of marble. And, um, he was the emperor to whom Virgil dedicated his Aeneid. So there was a uh, so there was there was state worship going on, which was rife throughout the Roman Empire. I mean, Rome increasingly during the time of Jesus and afterwards into the early church was absolutely a place of state worship, emperor worship, looking to the state to provide all the needs. Um, very entertainment driven, increasingly. Very. I mean, we can we can see huge similarities in our own culture. As we move away from God, we're worshiping people. So we will look to something to provide for our ultimate needs. And, and we look to the state increasingly. Have you noticed how the uh, presidential elections in America are increasingly messianic? We look to the president to, to be our Messiah, to be our savior, to be omnicompetent. That's not at all what the founding fathers intended. Um, but as God moves out of, out of our sphere, uh, um, we something else is going to move in. And so, you know, state worship is here. State worship was certainly there. Sexual promiscuity was certainly there, even as part of, of, of false worship. And uh, entertainment was certainly there. Uh, and, it, of course, it's a huge idol here. And we often compromise. Uh, we often give our affections to those things and look to those things to satisfy us. And when we do that, we, we look just like the world. We're running, you know, running after, um, we're filling our lives with, with, uh, all sorts of entertainment. We're filling our lives with, uh, sport. And again, there's nothing wrong with entertainment or sport per se, but when you're being driven by these things and you're, you're so busy, just like the world and I'm guilty of these things and it's crowding out, uh, time with the Lord, time with his people, time to reach out to the lost and be and build relationships and be with others that don't know Jesus that are far from God and, and give them the gospel and love them and draw them to Jesus. Um, when those things aren't prominent in our lives, something's terribly wrong. And in the lives of so many of us, we're just busy. We're just busy running after the things the world's running after, um, security, wealth, uh, 
giving our affections to entertainment to the state and looking giving our putting our hope in the state um so back to pergamum here there was a um Again, it's just, it was just an idol, an idolatrous city. It was built, built on a steep hillside, sort of a terraced town. It had the largest, the steepest theater, I should say, in the Roman world. Uh, it was loomed over by a over 100-foot statue of Zeus, which dominated the city. And um, they were just, they were compromising here. And Christ is, is ruthless. He's relentless in his love for us. I mean, he, he went to the cross to save us. He gave all of himself to get all of us. He doesn't want part of us. He wants all of us, body and soul, all of our hearts, all of our affections, all of our emotions, all of our minds, all of our bodies. He's a jealous God. So he, he mentions, let me just briefly say, a couple things about just some context about Balaam and then about the Nicolaitans just so I can touch on them and then kind of home in on what I think is again the root of, of this of this word and then move toward a close um, Balaam when he mentions Balaam he um, he he says that you, you're committing the sin of Balaam who who led the Israelites astray yeah, Balaam, you have to go back to Numbers 22 through 24. He was a prophet, a pagan prophet that somehow heard from God still. And, you know, Balaam's ass is, is familiar uh, to, to so many people. It's even come into parlance. For those that don't know the scriptures, they know Balaam and his ass. And it was oh, the biblical writer was making fun of Balaam because he, he was this man that heard from the gods and that was this clairvoyant and very prophetic, very gifted, and yet uh, his his donkey, his ass that he rode, his beast of burden, saw an angel that he couldn't even see. So he was blind, but his, his, his donkey could see things that he couldn't see. And so anyway, he goes, he's hired by this pagan king. Israel's moving through um, the land on the way to the promised land. And this pagan king hires Balaam to curse them from a mountaintop as they are Israel's camped out in the valley below. And he can't do it. The short of it is in Numbers 22 and 20 through 24, he can't do it because God has blessed Israel. And he says, I can't curse whom God has blessed. And so he can't do it. But the point of, of Jesus here to the church in Pergamum is that he couldn't overtly curse them, but he cursed them subtly. And that's the way Satan often works um, through getting them, introducing them to a foreign peoples with whom they intermarried and committed sexual immorality and then their, um, and then idolatry by worshiping that nation's, the Moabites' gods. So overt curse couldn't be, you know, pronounced over them because God had determined to bless his people and yet their lives of compromise uh, cursed them. And so, you know, Satan, if he can't get us to commit adultery, He'll make us busy. He'll make us busy. Little compromises. You know, I was thinking about just weight gain today and thinking about eating a donut and thinking about, you know, not, hey, I love, I'm, I'm number one. I mean, a lot of Saturdays we'll have donuts. I mean, don't hear me speaking, you know, outright against entertainment, sports, or donuts. Good gracious. It's not what I'm saying. But uh, I was just thinking about my appetites and how I love sugar and I love fat and salt and fried things and yeah you know and you 
you know, I ate a, I ate a water burger last night with my brother. Sort of, we were had a session meeting, and we coming home, we were both hungry, and so we had we we I don't know that we've ever done that. I mean, I, mean, I have I have water burger, you know, a couple times a year, and I don't know that he and I have ever ever done that. So we did it kind of in preparation for his birthday today, I guess. But we indulged ourselves. But just thinking about that's that's how you gain fifty pounds. Not one burger, but just a little here, a little there, and that's that's how people get overweight, right? It's how they get out of shape is not going to the gym today and then not going tomorrow. And then eventually, you know, a year has passed and you've been sitting in your chair working all day and gotten busy and you haven't gone to the gym day, but it's just one day after another day after another day, you know, atomic habits, James clear, right? It's just little micro habits that add up. Um, you wrote a thesis I did in Edinburgh, Scotland, and it's, you know, it's just three to 500 words a day today just today and then the next day and the next and eventually you have after a year or two you've got uh, a thesis that you can work with and start to edit down that's just the way it works you eat the elephant one bite at a time but the obverse is true as well right um i gain i gain weight a couple a couple grams at a time through these little decisions or i get strong or or lose weight or or get weak in the same in the same sort of way so these little compromises they they add up and they pull us you know it's kind of like the um the boat that uh, you, you're, you're drifting, and there's, there's Jesus warns against drifting away in the book of Hebrews. And you think your anchor is down, and you go down below decks, and you take a nap, and then you, you wake up in three hours, and you, and you pop your head out above deck, and you realize, I am in the middle of the open ocean. I have no idea where I am, and it's because your anchor wasn't down. And, and you just have slowly drifted and drifted and drifted and now you're lost and you're in grave danger. And so that's really the word here to these people. Um, and really it's not so much about, I mean, I've, I've focused here on, you know, Jesus, Jesus says to them, stop with the little compromises, stop with the sexual compromises, stop with uh, the focus on these other things. That's what it's really about though. It's really about, I'm reading a book by Kurt Thompson right now. I just started called The Soul of Desire. And this, he, he, he plugs into Augustine um, and, and more modern writers like James K.A. Smith and others. But we're driven by desire. Ultimately, it's an appeal to desire that goes even beneath this don't do this and don't do that. Um, because as Augustine said elsewhere, we, do, we choose ultimately what, what our what our deepest desire is, what our greatest desire is, what we think is going to make us most happy, even if it's negation, even if it's abstention, even if it's saying no to something, because what we, we know is going to make us feel better, we know it's going to help us live longer, we know it's going to make us more happy in the long run. And so ultimately, Jesus, he made us for himself, and he knows that none of these other things are going to satisfy us. Satisfy us. They're going to be like sand in our gas tank. He's the gas that makes us to run. One commentator, he says, uh, he says, God is to be first in our affections and actions. See that in our affections. He's not, he only says no for a deeper yes, right? He knows he has made us for himself to quote Augustine from page one of the confessions and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. He alone satisfies us, which is kind of where he ends with these promises that are promises of, of satisfaction of the manna 
of the st- of the white stone with a name on it that no one but but he, but he knows. God is to be first in, in our affections and actions. Nothing must displace Jesus in our lives, whether it be family. Now, these things he's going to mention are good things, whether it be family, health, wealth, comfort, work, or success. Christians in Pergamum did not stand out from the world, but rather compromised with it. That's really that's really the word here. And so Jesus says, um, repent, turn, turn from these things. What? To me. And he's cutting them with this straight word, like a sword from his mouth because he loves them because he cares about them. And so that's what his word does as we go back to his word time and time again and spend time with him in community and alone. Uh, his word cuts us where we need cut because he loves us. And so let it do its work. Let Jesus do his work. Let the body of Christ around you, the, the people that he's put around you that truly love you, let them do their work. Open your life up to them and hear them. And, um, and our, our lives ought to be ones of constant course corrections, of constant, like Martin Luther said in his, the first of his 95 theses that he nailed on the Wittenberg door in 1517. The Christian life is one of, continual repentance. It's not just a one time I walk the aisle, I say no to me and yes to Jesus. You you, you came to rescue me. You live the life that I should live but can't. You died the death that I deserve on the cross. You took my place. You're my, you love me and, and your cross shows me not only how much you love me but how wicked I am and what I deserved and that I stand condemned under the just wrath of God for my lifestyle, for what I've done, for what I've thought, for what I've left undone. But Jesus, you took my place. And you've made a straight way for me to go all the way into the lap of the Father, to be fully loved and embraced by him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Um, and uh, Jesus, um, he, the one who speaks these words, that may seem hateful are actually loving. He's the same one who died for us, who gave his life for us. So we can trust him. We can trust him. And he doesn't stop doing that when we come to him initially by faith and give our lives to him. That's the start. It's the start of a relationship with one who truly loves us and knows us and sees us and is going to constantly be speaking things into our lives that hurt but they, they hurt because they're true and because he loves us, he's going to say them to us and they lead to life, right? And they lead to him because he is life. And so again, beneath the no, stop doing that as a deeper yes, repent, turn to me from these things. So his, his promise is, is beautiful. It's, it's, it's both that he will give them a, a manna that's hidden. Let me read it again. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I would give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So, man, this is a mystery, but just briefly, the manna was what God fed his people with in the wilderness, in the desert where you will starve. God fed them daily. Amazing. Like a mom feeds her baby with this manna that fell literally from heaven, this sweet bread. And it's hidden here. And so it's a way of saying, look, I'm going to provide for you daily and, and nourish you in ways that uh, are, they're, they're constant and they're satisfying. And, and, and it's a mystery. It's hidden. It's a mystery to those 
that may be looking on the outside, but here you are. Satis- I'm going to satisfy in ways that nothing else that you're chasing after that you're surrounded by in your, in your culture can. Um, no government, no sexual escapade, no luxury, no amount of money, no, no bank account, no comfort, no house, no second house, no friend, no spouse, no child, nothing, no sport, no performance. Nothing can satisfy you like I can satisfy you. I have the hidden manna. So come to me. Um, and then he, and then the white stone, right? So here, the con, a bit of the context, the white stone was given to, in the, in the, uh, the games, the, com, the competitive games to victors so that the victor could then enter a banquet that was for, uh, for the elite only. And um, they were also, white stones were also given in, in this, uh, in the Roman culture to signify acquittal in court cases. So, so the stone uh, means that Jesus giving a white stone uh, to, to those that overcome means that those who overcome, they're, they're free, they're acquitted. The, the blood of Christ, what, is, what does John say in Revelation 1.5? It frees us. It has freed us, past tense, right? The blood of Christ has freed us. It's been done from our sins. We have our freedom through Christ and what he's done for us. He has purchased our freedom with his blood. He holds the keys to the things that bound us, death and hell, because he became our sin on that cross and paid for it fully. Um, but it also means that, you know, it's, it's, it's freedom, it's acquittal, but it's also um, entrance into as a victor. He was the victor and he is the victor over death and hell and in the power of sin. Uh, and, in him, by faith in him, we also stand victorious. We have his victory. And so we, um, we're given access through Christ into what C.S. Lewis calls the inner ring, which is a, a compulsion, a syndrome that drives us all of our lives, that we will, we want to, we will do anything to gain entrance into whatever exclusive society uh, appeals to us in our lives. And there are many, Right. Relational, relational stuff, professional stuff, these inner rings that we gain access to through so much hard work, through going to the right schools, through being part of the right clubs, whether they be country clubs or, or not, through having a certain set, set of friends or, or having accomplished this or that, right? And we'll do, Lewis says, to get into this inner ring, we'll often make, we'll often make huge compromises. And we will do both anything to get in and then we'll do anything once we're in to keep others out. It's really ugly, and it's really a real syndrome that all of us that drives all of us in some way. And the gospel, among other things, is it explodes that because it is Jesus leaving the ultimate entering, the Trinity, the I mean, the most exclusive, right? I mean, none. We've all fallen so far short uh, of of entrance into that fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus left. He didn't leave the Father and the Spirit, but he left heaven and all the privileges therein, Philippians 2. He left that privileged inner ring to come down and, and to be shamed and rejected by his own and nailed to a cross and to have the wrath of his Father, his loving Father, whom he had never sinned against, whom he had been loved by from before, before, for all eternity, from before time. He had his father pour his wrath out on him that we deserved. He took it. So he was cast out of that ring, cast far, far out, infinitely out, if I can say that, 
so that we could be brought in. Because that was our, that was our lot. That was our fate. And that is the fate and the lot of all those who do not hide in Christ by faith. And so he who is in the ultimate inner ring uh, was cast out to bring us into that ring. And so, be, and, and, and as, as those who stand fully loved and accepted and embraced by the Father through the work of Jesus Christ, not through our own work, through his, uh, we don't have to strive anymore to get into any inner rings and to keep others out. We get to instead to spend our lives inviting others in through the work of Jesus, not through their own performance or goodness or beauty, but those that have failed the most, those that realize their own sin and falling short, the the gospel will only appeal to them. No matter how much money you have or don't have, no matter what your performance is or isn't, only those who realize I've fallen short will the gospel be good news to, and it is indeed good news. So, so Jesus, he, he breaks that cycle. Um, and he says, enter into my joy. All of our lives are spent striving to gain entrance. Jesus uh, left it to rescue us and to bring us home. And so let me, let me just read this quote by C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. He says, we do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows, even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. Now, now Lewis doesn't say this, but let me just interject something a bit, a bit more prosaic than he would because his, his uh, sermon here, Weight of Glory, is just absolutely one of the best things ever written in English that I've read. Uh, I try to return to it often, at least once a year. But he says, you know, we don't want to just see beauty. We want to, it's not enough for us. We, we almost want to pass into it. He's about to say that. And I, and I often, I think about how people pinch you know, kids' cheeks, and they say, I just, want to eat. I just want to eat that kid. I just want to eat you up. You hear adults say that to child, cute children. And I think that's, that's a sort of pedestrian expression. We're, we're saying something deep. We're saying, I want that. I want more than just to look at that beauty. I, 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 need, I need to have that beauty in me, right? Um, he says, we do not merely see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. That is why we have peopled air and earth and water with gods and goddesses and nymphs and elves, that though we cannot, yet these projections can enjoy in themselves that beauty, grace, and power of which nature is the image. That's why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a human soul, but it can't. They tell us that, quote, beauty born of murmuring sound will pass into a human face, but it won't, or not yet. For if we take the imagery of Scripture seriously, he says, if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry, so false as history, may be very near the truth as prophecy. At present, we are on the outside. Here it is. This is why I want to read this. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. See, we long, we have this on we, we know something is, we're on the outside, we want to get in. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are wrestling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. And that's one of the things Jesus is, is promising here. And, it, and we have taste a real satisfying taste of it now 
that more and more and more is coming. The spirit that comes to live, the spirit of the living God, the spirit of Christ himself, when the moment we trust in Christ comes to live inside of us. He knows us like we want to be known and he wants to be known by us. He brings us back into the relationship that we were made for. And as that vertical relationship is restored with the God who made us for himself, horizontal relationships begin to be restored as well. And what, what we get a taste of here, we will have a feast of one day. And that's what Lewis is talking about. And all the leaves of the New Testament rustle with that promise, right? We're headed somewhere good. And Revelation certainly takes us there. It shows us that's where history is headed for those who are in Christ. For those who are outside of Christ, this is as satisfied as you will ever be. And that's a promise, my friend. So run to Christ. Um, and then the name, the name is written, the name that only the one who receives it knows is written on that white stone. Um, you know, our names are our identity. And so the fact here, just in short, is that only Jesus knows who you were made to be because he made you to be that. And only he can make you that and take you there. And so the more we fixate on Christ, the more we become like Christ. And the more we become like Christ, the more we become our unique and distinctive selves. It sounds, it's, it sounds like an oxymoron, but it's a paradox and it's true, right? It's true. Um, the world promises this, Hey, you know, find your true self, follow your heart, be you. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a appeals because we were made for that. We're made, we know that we're made uniquely, but the only way to find ourselves is to lose ourselves by running to Christ by faith and casting ourselves upon him and asking him to come deliver us and to live inside of us and, and to free us. And he will. And, and in doing that, we become who he made us to be. Um, Tom Schreiner, a commentator, go, goes on. He talks about how both of these images, these promises of the manna and the stone, are the same reward, and they both point to the banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19 that, uh, that we're headed toward, those who are in Christ. It's not a modest supper of bread and water. It's a sumptuous feast with wine, with meat for those who have overcome, for those who have been invited fully in to that which their souls were made for, with true fellowship forever with their king and with those that have overcome as well through faith in Christ. And, um, and, and we will really live. Uh, life will, will open, the door of life will open wide to us. Death will be no more. Tears will be no more. Cancer will be no more. Um, despair, despondency will be no more. Sadness will be no more. We'll adventure, we'll explore. We will feast, we will rule. Uh, and the intimacy and fellowship will be mind-blowing. Um, I think one of the things that we're going to say most in the new heavens and new earth is, oh, wow. You know, oh, wow. Um, my professor, uh, Doug Kelly, he, in one of his sermons in Revelation, his sermon on this letter, he says the secrets, he shares, he shares a, um, sorry, he's quoting someone, he's quoting Baron von Hugel of Germany, the uh, 19th century. He says, the secrets that God keeps are at least as good as those he reveals. And he goes on, Doug Kelly goes on to comment and say, this is the point of the letter to the church in Pergamum. Um, Christ says, I'm quoting Doug Kelly here, if you will be faithful to me and follow me and avoid the moral compromise with the culture that you're living in, I'm going to show you a secret so wonderful that you wouldn't give it up for 10 worlds. Let me just finish with 
another quote by Lewis from C.S. Lewis from the start of his sermon, The Weight of Glory. He says, the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. Again, like I started with, right? Christ is saying here, stop this, stop that. And he's saying that to us as well. Stop compromising with, with the culture. But he doesn't, that's not the, that's not the final word. It's so that it, it, there's a yes beneath the no, right? So it's not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. Follow Christ, get that? I'm, I'm interjecting here. To follow our, our Savior and our Lord and our Maker and the satisfier of our souls. He doesn't just say, take up your cross and die. He says, and follow me, be with me. And nearly here, I'm picking up Lewis again. Um, deny ourselves, take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. So I'll just finish by saying Christ, he's hard here to this church. He's stern and unyielding, but he's proud of them. And his word is in the end, a promise and an appeal to desire and to its everlasting fulfillment in him. God bless you.